Welcome to How Leaders Lead, where every week you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I break down the key learnings so that by the end of the episode, you'll have something simple you can apply as you develop into a better leader. That's what this podcast is all about. Today's guest is Lauren Hobart, president and CEO of Dick Sporting Goods. I'd bet you good money. If you look at any job description for a leadership role, the one thing that's always going to be listed there is excellent communication skills. And it's funny, we talk about communication skills and leadership so often that it's easy to forget what it actually means to communicate well. Today's conversation with Lauren is just the best reminder of what great communicators do. It's not just about being well-spoken, although Lauren certainly is. It's more than that. Lauren sees communication as a way to connect with people. It's a huge reason she has been tapped to take the reins at Dick Sporting Goods, making her one of only 41 women CEOs leading a Fortune 500 company. This conversation is a masterclass in great communication, how you can relate better to your direct reports, how you can address conflict, how you can get your vision across, and so much more. I can't wait for you to learn how to communicate by making a connection. So here's my conversation with my good friend and soon to be yours, Lauren Hobart. Lauren, you've just been announced as the upcoming CEO of Dick Sporting's Goods. You're going to take over the role officially uh, February 1. Uh, you've been present, but now I know everybody's looking at you. They're saying you're the you're the CEO. Does it feel any different, you know, thinking about becoming that CEO versus the president that you've been? Um, yeah, it does. In terms of, it feels like a weightier responsibility. It feels like uh, I have to um, deliver, which I always have felt that way. But now, even on a more public stage, uh, and I and I I think when you're the CEO, you know, the buck the buck stops here. And so, um, I feel, I, I, I feel things I've, I've always felt responsibility, but I feel even more responsibility going forward, but I am excited for the challenge. You know, and as a leader, you know, how do you expect to transition into this new role and, and what are the, the, the new things that you hope to accomplish? Yeah. Um, I, I've been working for the last several years on some of the things that are very important to me around our culture, around our service organization, uh, around our brick and mortar stores and driving experiences there. And I do in partnership with Ed. So Ed, our CEO is going to transition. He's our founder and CEO is going to transition into the executive chair role um, and be chief merchant. And so a lot of the vision that we will be working on has been set um, for the last couple of years. The strategy will continue and we're just going to keep driving it in a post-pandemic world. You know, uh, most successful companies have continuity and people and process uh, so obviously with you and Ed being a team in the past, you know, do you view that as uh, as a big plus as you move ahead? For sure. I, I have, I mean, not just do I get the counsel of um, the person who knows the business better than anybody in, uh, ever would could know a business, um, but I get, you know, somebody who's so very interested in the company's success. So you know, he he wants me to succeed more than I want me to succeed, and and um, we're very aligned in that in that goal. So I think it's really a, it's a very seamless um, it's a very seamless transition. It, you know, I was asked on a on an earnings call recently, kind of what was going to be so different, and 
And I feel like the, you know, the good news is we've been working on this together for some years. We're going to switch roles a little bit, but, um, but the vision's been set and, and it's, it's not going to feel like a radical change to, to the team or the, or the world. How do you take on somebody like that when you disagree with them, which inevitably happens when you have so much respect for them? Uh, um, well, I def- Ed and I definitely don't agree on everything, and we joke about that because we know we don't. Um, but so we do have spirited conversations and debates, and um, sometimes we don't leave a conversation agreeing. We always end up leaving, you know, on friendly terms. But we'll come back and say, "Sleep on it," or "Let's get back together in a day or two, and we'll think about it again." When when a topic is very something I feel very strongly about, whatever it is, an initiative or or something that I want to move forward with. Um, if I haven't successfully convinced him, I'll come back at it after a day or two. Um, and, you know, and he's open to that. And that's just how we that's how we move forward. COVID really just kind of just shook up everybody. Every leader really had to look at themselves and say, OK, I've, I've got to do some things different. How did it impact your own personal leadership, Lauren? What did you do differently to deal in this environment? Yeah, COVID was um an unbelievable challenge, as everybody knows, personal challenge, um, company challenge, leadership challenge. I think for me, it was it was the responsibility and being in the president role at the time, the responsibility of having 40 to 45,000 different teammates who are depending on us for their livelihoods. And we talk about helping people achieve their dreams. That's one of the mantras that we have in the stores. We want to make people achieve their dreams. Well, when you have 40,000 employees and a store base that's closing and we can barely get product out of there, it was very, very challenging. And so the one thing I'm most proud of about our company's leadership uh, and, and working hand in hand with the entire executive team is that we led every step of the way with values, with safety. We took care of our uh, teammates from, from start to finish in terms of providing health insurance, in terms of making executive salaries the first to go down. We did have to furlough people, but the people who remained worked tirelessly to get everybody back. And so um, it was an incredible, incredible challenge. People are going through still, obviously, lots of challenges. But in a weird way, the team has come together um, incredibly, incredibly strongly and, and so in a way that I think is going to help us into the future. Did you have to change anything you specifically do to adapt in your, your own leadership style? Yeah, um, actually, it's interesting. I would, I think inadvertently and because of technology, we actually were able to communicate even more. So I, my, my communication style, my leadership style does include a lot of open communication, a lot of honest dialogue, a lot of um, transparency. But during during the first stages of the pandemic, when there was so much unknown and so much concern, uh, we really lit that up. And so we were having all company town halls um, frequently, uh, in addition to daily stand-up meetings every day with the leadership team. So I think it took communication, which has always been something that I'm passionate about, but it, it dialed it up to a level that, um, frankly, I think has long-term benefits because we will be communicating in this way with all of our teammates, you know, for years to come. You know, I've seen you on your feet. I've seen you deal with people in these town halls and, and, and you're really good at it. You know, how did you develop that skill? Oh boy. I don't know. Um, I think that actually, well, I'm going to give credit back to my Pepsi days, uh, because, and, and, you know, from your Pepsi past, um, Pepsi does have, there's a lot of, um, excitement around sharing ideas and, and making sure you can sell things in. Um, and so 
that's been something that um, has just been a part of my career development from from way back when. And I'm grateful to Pepsi for for giving those those opportunities way back when in my career. You're also entering the CEO role at a time when racial justice and diversity and inclusion, uh, you know, that the importance of of, of this has never been, you know, higher. Uh, you know, how do you see your role as CEO in terms of really making sure that, that Dix is doing the right thing? In our company, we've done a lot of soul searching and realized that we had opportunities and that um, we needed to really lean into the conversation around inclusion and diversity. And so we created almost immediately, right when um, George Floyd was murdered, uh, we ended up having what we call dialogue circles, because we had tremendous upset across the country with different teammates. And we had teams going through uh, different issues in their neighborhoods. And we ended up just across the country having these, what we call dialogue circles, which have now become a big part of our culture. And we are uh, meeting and just sharing thoughts. How are you feeling? There's no wrong answers. Um, On top of that, we put together the 19 different, what we call impact teams. And we've sourced thousands of people from our company who want to help with the initiatives um, and and are really activating across everything you can think of to make us really a better place to work and a better contributor to the the community. Um, We have a no zero, we we always had a zero tolerance policy, but it wasn't something that we had championed. We now have a zero tolerance policy against any form of racism whatsoever. And that's for our internal employees, as well as our, our customers who come into our stores, we're not going to um, tolerate it. So uh, lots of change in a very small amount of time. And I'll just I'll just say that the the dialogue circles in particular have brought the company together through the pandemic with people being virtual, still being able to have these sessions, even virtually with tears and with um, a lot of great emotion. It's actually brought us all much closer. You know, that's that's fantastic. And I've mentioned to a couple people today, I was going to do a podcast with the CEO of Dix. And I and they said, well, who is that? And I, and I said, well, it's Lauren Hobart. She just got the job. And, you know, people are are really impressed that, that you're a woman moving into this field. I mean, are, are people surprised by that, Lauren, that that uh, that a woman would be running a, a sporting goods company? It definitely seems that people are a little surprised, um, but you know, there's. I think we just hit an all-time high of 41 women in the Fortune 500 uh, who who will be CEOs. So that's that's a great um, mark to make. But yeah, I mean, getting to the C-suite as a woman obviously is not a, a well-worn path, um, and in the sporting goods industry, perhaps that part surprises people more than I realized it would have. Um, I, I know it's, but it just has never been something that uh, has been a challenge in, from my perspective. I mean, I, I grew up at companies with women leaders. I, I, I had um, that kind of a role model. And at Dix, I've, I've, it's never been an issue that I'm, I'm a woman. I'm just doing my job and trying to do a good job. So, um, so it didn't, it didn't, the sporting goods surprise some people, but it doesn't, it's maybe not as unusual as it seems. It, it it doesn't surprise you one iota, basically. <laughs> you know, it, do you feel like it puts more pressure on you being a female, being a CEO, and moving into one of those forty-one CEOs in the Fortune five hundred? I don't know if pressure is the right word. I actually think responsibility is the right word. I, I don't feel any more pressure. I'm sure all new CEOs feel pressure to succeed and deliver. I really want to deliver for the company. Um, I want to deliver for all of our teammates, but I do feel a responsibility to um, young girls and to 
and to women everywhere to just to to open doors and to show the path and to talk and to show people that you can you know have have in the case of female leaders you can have kids and and no you can't have it all but you can you can really do a lot of different things and so i do feel a responsibility to to champion young girls and and women well i have a a daughter and she has two uh uh young daughters and and you know they're pretty impressed that that you're running that company and so you know you're going to be a great role model for them i'm sure you know lauren you you uh got your mba from stanford as i understand it and that's a that's a real hotbed for entrepreneurs you know there's no question about that did you ever think about going that route you know um i didn't think of going entrepreneurial in the sense of high tech the way because te- tech bubble the tech bubble was booming at the time and it it still is booming um but i had come out of a a background in finance i had spent 5 years in banking and um i was excited to continue kind of leveraging those skills so technology was never was never my calling um but i do think it's important that innovation entrepreneurship all of those different uh, capabilities have have been something that has drawn me to the companies that I've worked for, um, including at Dix, which really is the the an entrepreneurial company that got big very, very quick, $9 billion coming from two little stores, you know, not that long ago. How do you take a big company like that and keep it small and entrepreneurial and, and nimble? I think it has to be the leadership and it has to be the culture. Uh, the, the one thing uh, that's really important. The best of intentions can build a lot of bureaucracy. And I think clarity of decision-making and um, clarity of vision and purpose uh, is just really important. So you have to set the vision, empower the team to so that they know what the goals are. Uh, we talk a lot about commander's intent um, and, and sharing those kinds of, um, you know, those kinds of principles so that people can make good decisions, um, but not becoming bureaucratic with decision-making. We are very nimble from a decision-making standpoint. Explain that principle to us, the commander's intent. Well, I think you can you can lay out a bunch of different um, mandates or, or tasks that people have to do, or you can say, I want you to do ABC, but the reason I'm telling you to do ABC is because the goal we're trying to achieve is this. And if you paint the vision, A, B, and C may not work out exactly the way we planned, and they never do. But if you know what the vision is, the smart people on the ground can adapt. And there's a million different examples of that, um, you know, throughout our throughout our company every single day, where people have to make calls, and if they know where they're trying to go and what the intent is, then they can get there. So you're driving an entrepreneurial spirit and 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 taking that forward at Dix, uh, uh, but you you went the big company route. You know, you mentioned you worked at, at Pepsi, and you also worked at Wells Fargo and J.P. Morgan Chase, as I understand it. When did you get that uh, first ambition to say, hey, I'm I, I'm going to be a CEO and I, I think I've got what it takes to make that happen? Oh, boy, that's a tough question because I'm not sure I should answer it the way I'm going to answer it. Um, I'm not sure it's a very CEO-like answer to give you what I'm about to give you, which is, um, you know, I, I never set out and said I'm going to be the CEO of any company. Even when I joined Dix, I joined, um, it's been about 10 years now, but I joined as the chief marketing officer and was very excited to continue down that path. Um, so I actually think that the, it goes back to the entrepreneurial environment and the fact that there were all these new opportunities that just kept coming my way um, to, to you know to run a PL, to run our e-commerce business, when all of a sudden that started to seem possible, uh, that something I had never been planning to do. So uh, you know, the last three, three or four years as we've been working on this have been incredibly educational. 
uh, and diversifying from a, from my skill set standpoint. But um, it's not it's not as if this was a well laid plan from the beginning. Well, you, you've certainly got a broad background. You know, you you worked at uh, Wells Fargo and J.P. Morgan Chase in, in in banking, and and then you decided to go to Pepsi-Cola and get into the marketing world, you know, after your, after your uh, time at Stanford, uh, you know, what made you decide to go from sort of a left brill, left uh, brain field into, uh, into the right brain area? Well, it's a funny thing, two things. Um, first of all, it wasn't an immediate step. So after I left Stanford, I did join Pepsi, but I joined in our strategic planning group, which was part of the finance organization. And I spent four years in strategic planning, so really kind of leveraging the banking background I had had, but really getting immersed in in the products and into CPG generally uh, before deciding pretty, I mean, at that point, pretty late in my career, I was over 30 at least, um, certainly well over that now, but but that I wanted to try marketing. So I went into marketing um, already as a director or senior director. um, And at Pepsi, marketing is both a combination of right brain and left brain. And I think all good um, marketing companies are. I mean, it's, it's highly analytic, but it did tap into the more creative side and um, trying to tell stories. So it was, it was a per- for me, it was a perfect blend. Again, not something I planned in advance uh, on the journey to get where I am today. Do you think having both the right brain and the left brain, is, is that a big advantage to you? And, and what advice can you give to people on how to get that? Oh, um, it's... I do think it's probably an advantage to have both, although I sure envy people who are so super creative that they can ideate better or so super analytic that that they can, you know, look at a spreadsheet and and figure out there's one number that isn't quite adding up properly. Um, you know, for me, the I appreciate left brain and right brain. I appreciate sort of looking at things analytically and also seizing a big idea and going going for that. Um, but that, that style may not work for everybody. It's it, I think you have to go with where you're, where your passions are and, and where your strengths are. You can't force it. If it's, if you're not creative, you're not going to make it up. I don't think, you know, speaking of passion, did, did you have a unique passion for, for sports? And, and if so, how much do you think that's really driving your success at Dick's? Yeah, it's funny. I do get that question quite a bit. And I have a little bit of an unusual journey in that um, I was not a fantastic athlete growing up. I played some high school sports, but I, I certainly wasn't winning any awards. Um, and I took to running um, in my late teens uh, and became somewhat obsessed with running and uh, the fitness side of sports. So I have been an avid runner all that time, like literally, you know, four times a week, except for when I had babies or surgery, like right around that time. And and that's really been how I've experienced um, athleticism, sports, fitness, and the joy that all of that can can give you. Um, my kids all play played sports in high school, and I, um, you know, I was an active parent in that regard. And um, I, I have incredible passion for for what we do as a company and the vision that we have. That we do want people. We do think sports make people better and provide opportunities for people and teach them how to win and how to lose. And and so it's super important. Um, it feels very consistent with my values, and it does keep me excited every day to come to work. You know, Lauren, you're you're renowned, and and you mentioned technology a little bit earlier, and you're renowned for the great job you did leading Dick's digital and e-commerce efforts. Uh, tell us a story of how you did it. 
Ah, the, well, first of all, it wasn't just me. There's a, a whole army of people who have been building Dick's technology and e-commerce uh, over many, many years. And it has been a long journey because we uh, we were one of the first companies to actually have an e-commerce business back in like 1999, well before I got to Dick's. But um, it took us a while to realize that we needed to bring the capability in-house and so that we could control our own destiny, so that we could make the business more profitable, so that we could innovate more quickly and not be beholden to other people. So um, we've been on this journey for, I mean, I think it's six or seven years where we brought it in-house. And then in the past three or four years, really starting to innovate and build the capabilities so that we can make things that the consumer sees. Because you're working on the back end, it's not so consumer facing. But in the last three or four years, we've been able to. So um, it's it's just, honestly, it's, it's putting the focus, putting the investment, um, not worrying that some short-term investment uh, you know, might create some short-term issues with profit, but it was important for the long-term. And, and so we did muscle through that. And, and thankfully, you know, when the, when the pandemic did hit, it was quite clear um, that we had made good investments and good decisions. Absolutely. And, and I also know you were the, you're the, the architect uh, teaming up with uh, Carrie Underwood, who's one of my favorites and, and starting the successful Kalia brand of women's workout clothes. Yeah, I kind of want to get I want to get inside of your head uh, uh, about how this came about. First, when did you get the idea that this was a line that was needed to needed at Dix? So Kalia was born about um, five and a half years ago. So we got the idea probably six and a half years ago, maybe even a little more, where we realized that there was a white space in our stores. There was a lot of um product for athletes, for boy athletes, for girl athletes, um, a lot of products for men, and not so much for what we call the athletic female. So we had the female athlete, but we didn't have what we call the athletic female, which is, you know, really, again, the, fit, the fitness athlete or the, the wo- woman who uh, wants to be ready for a workout at any moment. And so we, we thought we had a white space and we went into our um, private brand group, our, which we now call our vertical brand group, and we developed this product, but it was a funny journey because we had never worked with a celebrity like that before. I mean, it was very much not something we were familiar with doing. And uh, thankfully we got put in touch with with Carrie Underwood who has been an incredible partner all these years. I mean, she's she's helped us with both the product and the inspiration. She she became a mom, literally as we signed the deal, um, she, was, she was pregnant um, soon thereafter. And so all of her journey about how to, how to, you know, she, the latest thing we talk about is how do you choose you as, as a working mom? How does she do all that? And the, the product is, is meant to support that lifestyle. So we've been really, really pleased with Kalia. It is now our number two uh, female athletic brand, which is pretty amazing. And um, we think it has tremendous upside. That's interesting about Carrie Underwood because I she isn't necessarily associated with sports or, or I didn't think so. She is a fitness enthusiast of unbelievable proportions. And I can only say that when when I was um, in marketing and I was on those shoots, I mean, you would see her working out. You'd be very impressed. She is strong and she is disciplined. And um, yeah, she's absolutely terrific. She's super passionate. Her husband is a professional athlete. I mean, they're, they're very athletic. How'd you arrive at the Kalia brand name? That's a cool name. Yeah, it is a cool name. And it was a name we we ideated around a ton of different names. Um, We ended up with Kalia because of the the origins of 
a beautiful design we saw that had calla lilies in it. And we just thought that it would be um, a really nice takedown and a nod to that. And um, we thought we could infuse it with what it, with the meaning of the brand. So um, Kalia is what it became and, and that's what it is, um, yeah, to this day. How big a challenge was it to get the organization behind Kalia and, and, and how do you go about doing it? Um, I don't think Ed will, Ed, Ed, our CEO won't, I don't think mind me saying, um, because he admits very publicly that that he and and a lot of the organization were, were a little skeptical about the idea and particularly the idea of us um, partnering with a celebrity and, and getting into what was a little bit more of a fashion forward brand and doing it in-house, all of that. Uh, but we had a team, a dedicated team of people working on the brand. We had product that we knew was exceptional. We met that we met, you know, with Carrie and, and knew we had a real connection with her and her lifestyle. And um, and this is an example where Ed Ed just really did let the team go. And there was a few of us advocating really hard to let us go. And he said, "Fine, do it." Uh, and and he'll joke now that it was one of the one of the um, you know times that maybe maybe he wasn't right. Uh, but he's very <laughs> grateful for that. Yeah, when you get that kind of pushback and you have an idea and, you know, you've got people at senior levels, you know, uh, really pushing back at you, you know, how do you how do you overcome that as a leader? Um, I think you have to a couple of things. First of all, you have to pick your battles, right? I mean, I I think you don't want to fight every fight. Um, You have to pick what's important to you. And then it's just about sharing the reasons why. So um, I, I don't think you win an argument by putting your your you know, head in the sand and saying, I'm right and I want to move on and that's it. You have to convince. And and um, I've always felt that way. And, and as a team, we do have at our executive team level, a lot of dialogue where we start off with different opinions and and gently challenge each other. And, and eventually, you know, a lot of different opinions are raised. And then in the end, we we agree. So I think you just, you pick your battles and you, um, you come back at it if you don't win the first time. <laughs> I've also seen you, Lauren, on on television as the uh, spokesperson for Dix. Uh, you know, was this something that you were excited to to do? Oh my gosh, no, um, not even a little bit. And I am gonna say you're gonna have to go interview Ed because he'll admit that he he forced me. And I know you did interview him before, but he he we literally were we were trying to um, ideate around a back to school campaign. I mean, this is going back many years, and and he had the vision that you know what, you've got kids, they're going to school, you're a mom, you should be in the commercial. And I was, no, 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 that is not what I wanted to do. Um, and I didn't want to do it, but I but I have to say it was, uh, it was funny. My kids still remember that there was a line in the commercial that says, as a mother of three, and they all felt very famous at that moment. Well, you did a good job, you know, and, and, and you lead like nearly 2,000 retail stores, maybe more now. Uh, how, how do you go about getting ideas from from store managers? Ah, um, we get a ton of inspiration and ideas from store managers. And Ed and I uh, and the entire leadership team, I think we're out in the stores more than almost any company I I know of. We are out all of the time and we go out, we check, you know, the environments, the how how the store is doing generally. Um, but most of all, our goal is to hear from the stores what they think the opportunities are. Some of our absolute best ideas have have come out of the stores. So 
Um, it enables me to connect with with the team. It enables great ideas to come, and um, and, and we're, it's a, just a hallmark of how we lead at Dex. What What do you personally do, Lauren, to to stay on top of customer needs? Do you have a process that you use personally to make sure you really have a good feel for what the customer's thinking? That's a good question. We have a ton of different ways where we can get insight and analytics around how the athlete's doing, um, customer uh, athlete is doing. Um, everything from, you know, the call center where we do get calls and we we pay strict attention to that. We have emails, um, obviously, that if, if anybody comes in to complain that we that we codify and see what kind of the themes are. We also do um, customer satisfaction surveys real time. And we're just testing now uh, something called Happy or Not, which you probably have seen if you've been out in, um, you know, I've seen them in public rest areas, but um, it's uh, just really trying to get that real-time feedback because I, I think our team, if they can get that real-time feedback, not having to wait for a delay and not wait, having to wait a week for a survey to come in, um, whether or not customers are delighted in the stores at that time, it really does drive that behavior. So all of those different metrics um, sort of weigh into how we look at, you know, just this morning even, we looked at how, how our um, OSAT, our satisfaction scores were for the last month. And, and we spend a lot of time diving into that. You know, you, you're very articulate. You're, you're, you're very confident. Uh, was there ever a time when you personally felt underestimated and how did you handle it? Oh, that's a good question. Underestimated. Um, I don't know if I would say I felt underestimated. I'm going to, I, I would go back to, there were, there were a couple of times in my career where I, made very large career leaps um, into a lateral position where I really didn't know anything. Uh, so I was starting with when I moved from strategic planning into marketing at Pepsi, I had no marketing background whatsoever. Um, and then, and secondly, you know, when I moved into retail and had at, at Dix and had never um, had that side of, of, you know, the equation either. But so I would say, when I moved into marketing, it was a little frustrating because I really, I was at a level where I should know more than I knew about the subject matter at hand. Um, I don't think I was underestimated. I think it just took me a while to get my sea legs and learn the skills and um, take training classes. And I went and did a bunch of courses and then also just a ton of on-the-job training so that um, so that I, I felt like I'd slowed down a little bit, but to go faster in the long run. You know, You've also, you know, you've had so much success, but can you tell us about what you would consider maybe your epic fail or, or have you had one? Oh, I've had. Um, yeah. Um, I think the biggest, most noteworthy failure, the one that uh, people might remember is a product that we launched at, at Pepsi called Pepsi Blue, uh, which went into the archives along with, you know, the crystal Pepsis of the world as um, a very large, not so good experiment. Um, but, you know, that was right when I moved into marketing. It was maybe a year or two. It was my first innovation job, um, entrepreneurial. And, and um, and you know, we really got all the signals wrong. We thought we had a product that consumers would like, uh, and that turned out not to be true. We thought uh, we'd have repeat purchases. That turned out not to be true, and, and trial wasn't even there. And so um, that that was an epic fail in that, it, we you know, we, had, we just had such high expectations and we had a lot of data and analytics saying that we were going to achieve those expectations. So it was a real lesson in, um, in, in maybe going slow to go fast in the long run and testing and learning rather than just modeling. Well, I'm glad to know that you developed Pepsi Blue 
because I was the inventor of Crystal Pepsi. So those both of those goes into the archives of Pepsi failures. Gives you a good story <laughs> for the long run. Yeah. Right. I want to ask you a couple of hypotheticals because this is all about how leaders lead. Let's say you have a person who's getting great results, but they're de- demotivating the their team members. How would you handle it? That's a real example. That happens a decent amount of time. And I would say the first opportunity is is strong coaching and um, and specific coaching with examples about how they are having that impact on people. That could be done through 360 feedback. That could be done through observation. Um, but it's really important that the person has awareness. Uh, if the person can't get on board and and is somewhat of a toxic force, I don't care how good of a result performer they are. Uh, they To me, they can't stay. I think the team has to be rowing in the same direction, supporting each other. And there's just no tolerance for people who um, who are, are bringing other people down. All right, here's another one. Let's, let's say you, you really want to make a huge change in, in the organization. How would you go about doing that? What would be your process? I think you have to start with setting a long-term vision. I mean, by a huge change, I'm assuming you mean something that's going to take a year or two to, you know, it could be a cultural change or it could be a a change in how we deliver goods. Um, I think you have to set the vision, set the rationale and um, bring people with you, bring key stakeholders with you, uh, including the board of directors and the money has to come as well. But I, I would argue, set the vision, test and learn into it. Don't get over your skis in terms of um, building the Taj Mahal when you have to know first how to build. And um, I, th- I think that that will ultimately, in the end, be successful. You have to set the vision long term. You know, you mentioned coaching a little bit earlier. What's a one-on-one coaching session like with you? Um, I am, uh, yeah, I think that people would say uh, that my touch bases, my coaching sessions are highly informal. Um, I am, I I, I joke around a lot in a way, um, but I am able to deliver good feedback and real feedback. So uh, if I'm having a a performance review, it's not all laughs. I mean, we're talking about the business and we're talking about strengths and where the person has done, always starting with where people do well and then talking about opportunities. Um, But I don't, I don't have a lot of um, formality and, uh, you know, um, seriousness. It's always, it's always person to person. You mentioned touch bases. Is that a phrase that you use that or is that company jargon? That's company jargon. I probably, I probably at this point think it's a word in the English um, dictionary. Maybe it isn't, but it's, yeah, it's a one-on-one. It's a touch base. We call them touch bases. To me, in all seriousness, that the, the weekly touch bases that I schedule with each individual direct report of mine are the one thing on my calendar that I will protect no matter what. So, you know, if I can't do anything in a week other than have one touch base meeting with everybody because I'm traveling or I'm unavailable or meetings. Um, that is what I protect because that's where I really connect with people and also hear what hear what's going on, get the real deal. I like that phrase, touch bases. That's a that's a great, great way to think about coaching. How do you give yourself coaching? How do you self-coach yourself? Oh, I think um I am probably my harshest critic, or at least I am a harsh critic of myself. So I do I don't know if I would say I give myself formal coaching, but I do uh, rethink things. How how could I have done better in that situation? How did I have an unintended um, outcome of a behavior I, I or, or an action I took? It didn't go the way I wanted. I've, I've had some best of intentions that have, you know, even with people, with people things, I'm thinking one in particular where I really thought 
it was the best of intentions to bring two people together who were not um, collaborating well, and it ended up backfiring. And I think you have to sit back and learn what did what what did I do? What could I have done better here? What did where did it go wrong? I do have an executive coach um, who I use for things like that, who is super helpful to me and does keep me grounded in in terms of you know what are the important things and, and what do I want my impact to be. You know, Lauren. I, that's terrific. And I saw where you recently joined the Yum Brands board, which is my old company. Uh, tell us the thought process you used in making that decision. Yes, I'm thrilled to have just joined uh, the Yum board. I was on, um, well, I'm on the Dick's board, but I was also on an ex- external board, um, the Sonic Burger Company, for five years until we sold the company uh, about a year and a half ago. And so I was looking for another board opportunity, but I only wanted it to be with a team that I thought was really excellent with a company that might have interesting um, capabilities and also bring things that for me would be very interesting. Like I haven't had a ton of global experience, so it was really exciting for me that, that Yum has such a global presence. But it also felt like areas where I could add value, just given my you know, the beverage experience, franchise experience, um, traffic driving experience that we have in retail has very similar to what you have in QSR. So a lot of it feels so, um, just feels comfortable in a really good way that I feel like I can add value while also learning. The team also, and maybe it is because Yum is a spinoff of Pepsi. I mean, it just feels culturally like exactly what I'm looking for in a, in a company um, and in a board. So that was another major deciding factor. Lauren, this has been so much fun. I, I, I want to have some more with the lightning round of Q&A. Okay, let's start with this one. You know, what are the three words that best describe you? Yeah, um, I would say uh, one of them, one would be insightful. And that meaning uh, in terms of just kind of having good instincts, how, how to read a room um, and situations. I think I'm also empathetic, um, you know, caring. And then while many of my team and my family might disagree with me, I, I do I do think I'm I'm pretty funny. <laughs> so I would say <laughs> at least I crack myself up. So um, insightful, empathetic, and funny. What do you see in business that makes you the happiest? I think business has such a unique opportunity to make the world a better place. And um, I've seen it this past year, both with how we handled the pandemic and, and how um, we're handling the, the issues of um, civil unrest and and racial injustice. But I I go back to what we did at Dick's a few years ago uh, when we took a big stand with firearms and ended up taking the assault-style rifles out of the stores and um, limiting the age of anyone to buy a firearm to over 21 and high-capacity magazines. And I think that's an example where business can actually make a real difference in the world, where we had an expertise in an area. We believed that there were certain loopholes. The government wasn't getting there. And we felt it was our responsibility to act. So um, I get pretty excited about the impact that business can have. Yeah, that's great. What's your biggest pet peeve? Chewing gum. If you could be one person for a day besides yourself, uh, who would it be and why? Um, I think one of my favorite people in the world uh, is maybe who I would say in that example would be Tina Fey. Um, and I love her because she's so real and she's she's also very funny. I would give her more funny than me, but, um, but but I also, I, I love, if I could go back in time, if I could time travel also that, you know, the work that she did on on SNL and as writers and how they had to work under such incredibly um, rushed circumstances. You only had like three days to put on an entire show. It had to be culturally relevant in real time. 
Um, so I would be pretty psyched to go back and be in her body and see what some of those were like those days. That'd, that'd be cool. What's something about you that few people would know? Um, well, you may know by the end of this if I go back and listen, but I do have, um, I mix metaphors quite a bit. <laughs> I probably did it here. If you go back, you'll hear. Um, but I, I actually, I find it, it's either brilliance or it's um, stupidity. I don't know, but I can perfectly put two two metaphors together. Um, like, yeah, I, I'll give you some of them when we next see each other. <laughs> okay, great. And uh, what, what do you think is the, the most interesting factoid about Dick's? I think that it started as a little bait and tackle store back in 1948 and uh, that it's grown. It's an American dream story. I mean, it's grown yeah. as a founder-led company. It truly um, just continues to to metamorphosize and change and adapt to times. And um, and I'm just super proud of the part of American culture and the family culture that it, that it, that it brings. And who would be your favorite leader and why? I have a lot of people I look up to um, across my career and even in my personal life, but um, I have to say that I'll give that one to Ed, Ed Stack, our CEO. Former, former CEO. Yes, former <laughs> CEO, founder, uh, executive chair. He is... Um, an unbelievable leader in terms of many different things, but in this case, why he'd be my favorite is leading with values. And I think it's rare to see a CEO uh, stand up so much for what he or she believes in. And in this case, you know, you look at somebody like Ed who put $250 million of sales at risk when we made some of those announcements about firearms. And I have to say, um, it never, he never blinked. I mean, we were doing what was right for, for the company and for the country, and um, it was the right thing to do. So I have incredible respect for that. You know, Lauren, you're in a really competitive industry. Retail's 24-7. I mean, it's just dog eat dog. You know, every, it's, it's you know, you worry about the sales every day. You know, I know I've been there. I've done that. It's it's not, not easy. And you've got a family and, you know, how do you balance it all? And what advice can you give to people? I, well, I think that probably the biggest piece of advice and how I would balance it all has been um, with friends and family. And in particular, my family, I have, I, I, I do think that the partner you pick in life is super important. And I've been very, very lucky uh, to have a husband who's as supportive as he is and who could help me um, raise raise the three kids. I had parents um, when, our, when my kids were young, I had parents who lived nearby and were willing to help out if I couldn't be somewhere for work. Um, my kids were thrilled to have my mom come and she would do that. And it just gave me incredible, an incredible support system. And even, even friends. I mean, we had, we had four other families that we raised our kids with who I used to joke, I could sort of drop my kids off. If I got transferred to Asia, I could just drop the kids off and they'd be fine in any one of those houses. And that just gives, it's, it's, you know, it takes a village and it did take a village. So. You know, Lauren, you worked at J.P. Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, you know, you get your Stanford MBA, go to Pepsi, end up being president of Dick's, you know, and the thing that really Im impresses me the most is you have all these credentials and, and yet you, you, you're really down to earth, a real person, you know, how do you, how do you stay humble? Oh my gosh. I stay humble. Cause I'm certainly have a reasons to be critical of myself. Um, I appreciate you, you listing out all those accomplishments, but, uh, but it's, it actually, you know, joy every day is connecting with people and trying to have a positive impact in the world. I don't look at it the way you just laid it out. I look at it as um, I'm really grateful for the opportunities I've had and, and I hope to make a difference going forward. 
Well, I, I know you will. And I want to thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. You know, we're trying to make a difference, make the world a better place by developing better leaders. And, you know, having the opportunity to learn from you, I think, is, is a, great, uh, a great gift you're giving others. So thank you very much, Lauren. I really appreciate it. Thank you, David. I appreciate it. Well, there's no doubt in my mind that Dick Sporting Goods is in really good shape with Lauren at the helm. She shared so many practical tools for how she connects and communicates with her team. I love the weekly touch bases where she sits down with her direct reports. And I really love that they really are the only non-negotiable thing on her calendar. That's just fantastic. I also love the phrase she uses called commander's intent to describe how important it is for leaders to communicate the vision of where they're going and not just give people the ABC list of things to do. Because you know what? People really want to know why they need to do A, B, and C. So this week, as part of your weekly personal development plan, I want you to think about that commander's intent. Anytime you give direction to your team this week, make sure you're telling them the why behind those tasks. Communication isn't just a transfer of information from one person to another. It's a connection. When you share the vision behind your objectives, you're bringing your people along with you and connecting them to the big idea. So do you want to know how leaders lead? What we learned today is that great leaders see communication as a connection. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of How Leaders Lead, where every Thursday you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I make it a point to give you something simple on each episode that you can apply to your business so that you will become the best leader you can be.